Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 6, 2001, and my guest is Tim Harford, author and columnist for the Financial Times. His latest book is Adapt, Why Success Always Starts with Failure. Tim, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks very much, Russ. Nice to be on the show again. Before we begin, I want to let listeners know we're trying something a little different today with our technology uh, for recording the program. It's an experiment. Uh, It may be a failure that leads to success or it may be an outright success. Either way, let us know what you think of the sound quality of today's podcast by dropping me an email at mail at econtalk.org. Now let's turn to Tim and his book, Adapt. Tim, what is the connection between success and failure that you trace out in the book? It's quite simply that in a complex world, and I begin the book by trying to explain how complex the world really is, this amazing society that we've created, this very complex economy we've created, in a complex world, there's a lot of failure. And that needn't necessarily be anything to worry about. Very successful economies have very high levels of failure. Successful organizations have high levels of failure. Um, But we can't really get away from this failure. And so a key skill is being able to to manage it and respond to it and and learn from it. And I really began by examining the capability of markets to do that. And I know that's something you and your listeners will appreciate. But I was also very interested in whether other organizations could do the trick, um, what the political obstacles to learning from failure were, and, and even what the individual obstacles were. You know, why, as, although I'm not a psychologist and although it's mostly an economics book, I did want to ask, Why is it that you and I struggle to respond constructively? Why does failure hurt us so much? Yeah, that's you can speak for yourself. Um, I'm, you know, most of us never fail, so it's easy to respond to it. You never have to. Now, it is a fascinating question of how difficult it is psychologically for us to accept failure. And I want to come to some of those psychological issues. I hope we have room for that time for that at the end. you emphasize at various points in the book uh, F.A. Hayek's understanding of local knowledge and what he called the particular circumstances of time and uh, space. Why are those important? What's important about local knowledge? Where this emerged, and this I, I don't think is what Hayek uh, would, was originally thinking of, although he may well agree, where this emerged was actually when I was looking at the experience of the U.S. Army in Iraq. And it emerged in a tank battle, of all places. So what's going on? This is the first Gulf War. And there is a, a group of nine American tanks called Eagle Troop. And they're barreling along the desert in the middle of a sandstorm. And in some ways, the, the first Gulf War was a triumph for the, the planners' view of how a war should be. So you have this this wonderful conceit of the guy at the top with all these big screens, uh, satellite images and um, video footage from planes. He can see everything. He's got battlefield maps. He can make decisions about the whole governance of this war uh, from a air-conditioned tent in Qatar or uh, in, in Washington, D.C. even. Um, and 
the experience of this group of tanks maybe said, well, maybe it's not quite that simple. Maybe you can't always rely on centralized control, even in a war, even with that level of technology. Because these tanks came over the crest of a sand dune in the sandstorm. They had no satellite cover. They had no air cover. And they ran into nearly 100 tanks and armored personnel carriers, uh, dug in defensive emplacements, uh, and they're Saddam Hussein's Republican Guard. They're the elite guys. And how so many, how many t- tanks did the Americans have? They had nine tanks, so they're outnumbered 10 to 1. Okay. Now, the, the captain of Eagle Troop, he is the man with the, the knowledge of the specific circumstances of time and place. He's the only guy who can make the decision. He can't call back to base. He, he can't call in support. He, he can't say, hey, what does our map say? Because it's, it's all gone down. He's got to make the decision. And he's got to make the decision incredibly quickly, using the local information he has, um, evaluating the disposition of the enemy troops, uh, the disposition of his own men, uh, what the chances are. And he made an instant decision. He said, if we try and turn around, we're all going to die. We've got to attack. We're surprised, but they're surprised too. And he, he yelled out, fire, fire Sabo, which is an, telling his gunner to use um, anti-tank munitions. And they instantly destroyed an Iraqi tank. Three seconds later, they destroyed another. And three seconds later, they destroyed another. And then the, the entire, the other eight tanks came over the ridge. They all opened up. And very quickly, they'd won the battle. Now, that sounds a bit like a, a piece of Tom Clancy. And in fact, it was written up by Tom Clancy. And it's a celebrated battle that was supposed to indicate the tremendous superiority of the U.S. Army and the U.S. strategy. And in some ways it did. But the captain who experienced that situation, he came away with a different conclusion. He said, look, we we all nearly died. And the reason we didn't die is because I had to make a split-second decision. Um, In other words, it didn't work the way it was supposed to work. It it didn't work in a top-down way. I had to make the decision. And he campaigned. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of sort of very thoughtful men in the, and women in the U.S. military. And he campaigned, wrote a series of papers and analyses saying, you need to give more attention to the training and responsibility of the troops on the ground, whether it's uh, ordinary soldiers, whether it's captains, colonels. Later on, that became hugely important. He did two things. First of all, he wrote a a very respected history of the war in Vietnam, analyzing the failures of leadership, both political and military, and looking at some of the groupthink and the way that um, very dubious forecasts were made and the truth wasn't conveyed to the president and the president didn't really want to hear the truth and there were a lot of yes-men around. Analyzed this whole thing, blistering account, very widely read in the army. And then he did something even more important. This is in the spring of 2005, uh, he was a colonel now in Iraq, and his name is Colonel H.R. McMaster. And he was responsible for U.S. operations near a city called Talafa. And what Colonel McMaster did was pioneer a new uh, way of dealing with insurgents uh, that was very responsive to what was going on on the ground, uh, very intensive, very difficult, um, risky for his men, but also risky for his career, because at the same time that this was going on, the top brass, Donald Rumsfeld, he didn't want to even hear the word insurgent. So this was literally, a man literally, who, 
literally didn't want to hear it. Literally, literally <laughs> he, he, there's a famous press conference. This is a few months after the Talafa campaign started and McMaster was developing these techniques. There's a famous press conference just after Thanksgiving weekend, 2005. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld and uh, Peter Pace, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, talking to the Washington, the Pentagon Press Corps. And he, <laughs> Rumsfeld's going through these bizarre Orwellian contortions to avoid the word insurgent. And a, a journalist even called him on it. He said, why, why are you not using the word, sir? He said, well, I've had an epiphany over Thanksgiving, and I've realized these men don't deserve to be called insurgents. And then Peter Pace, the most senior general in the U.S. military, is sort of trying to talk about the problems in Iraq and apologizing to Rumsfeld. It's all a bit jokey, saying, well, sorry, I, sir, I can't really think of a better word than insurgent right now. Just b absolutely bizarre. And if it was just a press conference, it wouldn't matter. But actually, that was rife throughout the U.S. military. Senior uh, officers were saying, you know, we don't use the I word. It's not an insurgency. If you, and this, is, this is bizarre. It could have been straight out of 1984. Um, very top-down, trying to control even the language. Um, and it meant the strategy was just failing. And, uh, and more important than the fact that the strategy was failing, because strategies do fail a lot, is there was no way to change the strategy. You couldn't even talk about what was, what was going wrong. And that was something that H.R. McMaster uh, pioneered. He wasn't the only one. There were several really brave colonels who put their careers on the line doing this. But I, I think he was one of the first. And uh, something a British general told me while I was researching the book, which I think really struck home, and, and I, I, think, I think Hayek would recognize the sentiment. He said, you know, we always implement lessons learned on the front line because lives are lost or saved by how quickly you do that. But we very rarely implement lessons learned at the top because there's just no pressure and no incentive to do so. Yeah, one of the things I found, you know, so fascinating about the, the the use of the war example is that yes, people on the ground have more knowledge. That that sandstorm is a great example. You know, Hayek talks a lot about how uh, local knowledge that's in the heads of individuals it's incredibly difficult to get it out of their heads. Often they don't even know what that knowledge is until they have to use it. How do you get it out of their heads into a central authority who would then make some decision and pass it back down? And the, the time and knowledge burden there, he called it the knowledge problem, is so large, uh, it, it's basically an impossible problem that is not helped by having lots of computers. But you pointed, I think, to a, a separate problem, which is that the experts often struggle to uh, – come to the best decisions, even with the limited knowledge they have, because of groupthink, uh, because of ego, because of the exercise of power. And the war in Vietnam was an ex give some, a great example of that, the master chronicled, and, and similarly here in Iraq. The, it's not just that they don't have the right information. They're stuck in these grooves and ruts that they can't seem to get out of. That's absolutely true, and there are various psychological processes at work. So you mentioned groupthink. Um, so the classic study of groupthink is by Irving Janis, and it's a study of uh, the Bay of Pigs fiasco, where I, I forget the exact numbers, but the, the basic conceit was the American uh, administration of Kennedy was going to sponsor a couple of thousand untrained rebels, drop them uh, in Cuba, 
And they were going to defeat a standing army of, say, a quarter of a million well-trained, experienced uh, guys fighting on their own ground. Oh, and by the way, no one would ever figure out the U.S. was involved. Yeah. And on the face of it, you think, well, that, that's just crazy. No, how could anybody convince themselves that this would ever work? Um, and what's interesting about Janus's study is he says it's not that Kennedy was a, a sort of Stalinesque figure who suppressed dissent. He was trying to get people to tell him what they thought. But there were just social processes of, of you know, people just didn't want to, to make a fuss. And people would look around this room, Kennedy's advisors would look around the room and Everybody else seemed to think it was a good idea, so they, they didn't want to kick up a fuss. Well, it's, Later, it's also it's also risky, right? So if, if it's a success, you're the guy who yeah. said you should be worried about it. You look like a fool. The safe, low-risk strategy is to agree with everybody else in the room. Yeah, and then you can, no matter what happens... You're fine. You, you know, you're, 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 no worse off, you're no worse off than anybody else. Yeah. So Kennedy, Kennedy later on, I mean, this is very interesting, um, when trying to think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, he actually split his expert advisors up and forced them to have separate discussions and occasionally would bring them back together. He would also bring in um, uh, experts from outside to deliberately designed to shake things up because he realized just asking people for their opinion, even if it was done very honestly... Um, wouldn't necessarily work. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of that. Another thing is people get very attached to their role in a hierarchical organization. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing statement that I mentioned in the book that's quoted by uh, John Nagel, who uh, is uh, now at a Washington uh, security think tank. He was a counterinsurgency expert in Iraq. And he wrote a book about counterinsurgency. And this amazing quote is from a, a senior U.S. Army officer during Vietnam, and he says, I'll be damned if I'm going to ruin this army just to win the war. <laughs> the idea is, if we, if we adapt to the war we're fighting, then we're going to spoil everything. We've got yeah. it all worked out. It's all neat. We've got all our training programs and all our chains of command and everything, and you're just going to ruin everything just to win the war in Vietnam? That's crazy. And it really... You know, when you pluck the quote out of context, it just sounds insane. But actually, we, I think we all know people who behave like that when they're facing a, a business problem or a pol- policy problem. They're thinking, I'm, yeah, I could solve this problem or I could save the, I, I could save the, initial, the current structure of my organization. And that's a lot safer, especially if I'm a senior person in that organization. Yeah. I, I also thought about when I was, when I was reading that section, uh, the accounts that I've read of the Battle of Gettysburg – I've not read a lot of military – I'm not a military battle enthusiast, but I've read a little bit about Gettysburg. And you're just struck – and I think this would be true of any large battle. You're struck with how much ignorance there is. Um, and the great generals aren't the ones who sit there in that room and push the pieces around like uh, pawns on a chessboard. They're the ones who teach their underlings – how to freelance and deal with uncertainty, like the story you told uh, of McMaster in Iraq. Uh, you know, Lee, General Lee at Gettysburg, you know, the story goes that he really missed Stonewall Jackson because he trusted him. And here was a guy who had seen freelance, knew what he did that was right. And I think one of the reasons Lee failed at Gettysburg is that he didn't trust the guys he had on the, on the ground. And he was waiting for information, which he was horribly misinformed, all, all inevitably, because of the problems that, that we're talking about. So, you know, the fog of war is just, I think, the most, one of the most dramatic examples of the challenge of top-down versus bottom-up. I think you're absolutely right. And it's very interesting to reflect on how changing technology uh, changes this balance. Mm-hmm. We, I think, naturally assume that better communications and better computers, more information, 
um, helps the guy at the center. And this is something, uh, it, it was a, a fantasy, I guess it goes back to, say, uh, Salvador Allende in yeah. Chile. Tell that story. Cause that's famous. An, tell that story, because that's an amazing yeah. story that I actually didn't know um, until so very, I, very recently. I, and I didn't know the details. Yeah. I, so Allende um, hooked up with a cybernetic theorist called uh, Stafford Beer, uh, who was British. And... Um, so Allende was a sort of a democratically elected uh, Marxist leader in Chile in the early 1970s. Um, and it's fair to say he had a lot to deal with. Um, there was a lot of economic hostility from the U.S. There was possible sabotage. There was, there was a lot of strikes. I mean, he had a lot of problems that were not necessarily his fault. But nevertheless, his strategy for dealing with Chile's economic situation was, well, it, 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 was, it was basically a, te- a technological love affair. He was going to get really amazing computers, and Stafford Beer was going to plug these computers into the Chilean economy, and these computers would process all this information, and literally at five o'clock every day, they would print out a report, and the report would go to Allende, and Allende would be able to give directions, and it would all be sent back. It was all, it was telex machines, people, you know, people would, would telex in information about what was going on in their factories, and these big computers would process the information. Um, the most famous uh, visual uh, remnant of this was a, a control room that looks like something out of Star Trek. It's got swivel chairs with buttons in and screens. and actually was never operational. It never, they never plugged it in. But it, it became a symbol of this, this project called Cybersyn. Um, uh, it became a symbol both to, to people who wanted to mock it and to its proponents. Um, now, the, the funny thing is about Allende's project, he, he, the supercomputer he was using was called a Burroughs 3500, and, and my father actually worked all his life for Burroughs, which later merged and became Unisys. So at the beginning of his working career, which was, I think, 1969, he was actually working on this kind of computer. So I was able to sit down with my dad and have a great conversation about what these computers could and couldn't, couldn't actually do. Um, and, of course, 1970... He said it's not even a supercomputer by the standards of the 1970s. It was, it, was a, it was a good, solid kind of computer that you put in the back office of a bank and it would, it would sort of sort out people's accounts and so on. It was very, very reliable. Hard drives literally the size of washing machines. Um, he said you'd get a physical workout moving this thing around, but just not a, so much less powerful than a modern iPhone. Yeah. I mean, it, like, it's not even funny how much less powerful than a modern iPhone this computer was. And it just, it, it did not work. And I think one of the clear reasons why it didn't work is there's no reason for people, irrespective of the, the processing power, there's no reason for people to telex in the truth if the truth is not convenient to them. And even if they did want to telex in the truth, it could be that the, the bandwidth available just doesn't really convey what's really important, the opportunities or the problems that are really going on for a particular factory. Funnily enough, the only time that CyberSyn really worked um, was during the strikes, when basically the information was really simple, which is, hey, these guys, the strikers have, cut down, have shut down our factory, we can't produce anything. That sort of information CyberSyn could, could process, but the more subtle information needed to run an economy, it just um, it was, it was a complete failure. Well, this, of course, um, is a dream that goes back to the 19... 19- 20s, it goes back before that, but you know, there was this famous debate called the calculation debate in economics over whether you could centrally plan an economy. And this was before they had computers, right? They were, they were imagining the idea that if you had enough information and could process it, you could assign the right prices to the products, the right quantities to the factories, 
And in theory, you could do even better than the market. But of course, as as Hayek and, and Mises argued, you'd actually do dramatically worse. And, and they won that intellectual debate more or less. Uh, we had an interesting podcast with Pete Betke over whether the opponents conceded defeat or not and some of the details of the debate. But um, we'll put a link up to that. But basically – the world's realized that that computers aren't smart enough. It's not simply a question of processing a, a lot of information. It's information that's subtle. It's the particular circumstances of time and place that where the next supply increase could come from, how what might be the cheapest way to get it available, what substitutes are available. All that information can never be easily put into a computer or answered on a survey. So it's it's really a, a utopian uh, fantasy. It's really very interesting to um, to look at the empirics on this as well. What's the evidence as, as technology has progressed beyond you know anything that um, Hayek or his intellectual opponents could have dreamed of? Has has that changed things? And and how are people actually using it? Now on the battlefield, clearly there's no price system on the battlefield, and it, it is somewhat helpful for the guy in central command to know what's going on. There are things that can be coordinated, absolutely, especially. Especially the sorts of you know, uh, one-off lightning strikes that began the war in Iraq, um, you know, that sort of thing, the shock and awe, you can do very well and, and you, know, you, you, don't need, you don't have a price mechanism and you probably don't want to delegate authority completely to the people Absolutely. on the front line. All right, uh, you want to coordinate but, that from the top down. Yeah, but, but many problems, including the counterinsurgency problem, trying to, trying to sort of deal with the local population, get them to cooperate, protect them from uh, terrorists and insurgents, that's actually something that's very hard to coordinate centrally, and you need to trust the guys on the ground. Um, but it's, I, of course, the presence of things like email, um, news groups, um, to some extent empowers the the central command but it also hugely empowers the guys on the ground they could they can swap information on bulletin boards about the latest um, uh, improvised explosive devices roadside bombs what are the latest tricks what's going on uh, in your area they could they could swap uh, hints and tips there's a brilliant uh, powerpoint presentation uh, called how to win the war in al-anbar by captain trav al-anbar was a particularly troublesome province it was a really early victory in the counterinsurgency campaign that became the surge. And Captain Trav was this sort of cartoon character who, with these stick figures, would explain you know, how to talk to people, how to treat people, what the basic fundamental problem was with the insurgency. And this PowerPoint presentation was, was just passed around. And it was really easy to do so. It didn't have to you know, be printed off it's, you know, somewhere in Colorado and then shipped out to Iraq and distributed. It just... It was passed around like like Samizdat. Um, so the, these people were able to con- to communicate with each other. Um, I, I, I should say one of the things that I, I really found amazing about writing the book is I, I had never really thought about these military problems before, and I've always been an economist. And it is striking how important the decisions these men had to make the pressure they were under and the risks they were taking. Captain Trav himself was actually uh, called Captain Travis Patriquin, and he died just before Christmas in 2006 and left behind a widow and three children. And the thing that I, I never forget is reading that uh, all the local sheikhs came to his funeral because mm-hmm. he was so respected. He really understood how things worked in that province. He had formed all these alliances and and. The locals respected him. 
so, you know, it's, it's a little different from writing about economics. But I do try and draw these economic lessons. And so one of the things I wanted to do was say, well, what happens when technology uh, bursts onto the scene in an organization? There's some great work by Eric Brynjolfsson of MIT showing that um, this is about 10 years old now, but showing there's a really strong connection between new technology and decentralization of responsibility. They go hand in hand. You can either keep your old technology and, and your old centralization in an organization, or you can decentralize responsibility, give people much more flexibility, and also introduce the new technology, and that will work really well. But you, you, know, you, you need to do one or the other. You can't decentralize without the technology, and you can't introduce the technology profitably without decentralizing. That was a very interesting thing to reflect on. It's, it's not at all obvious that new technology is a force for centralization. Yeah, I was just uh, – I, I can't avoid noting uh, – I'm doing some light reading. Uh, I'm reading a 2,208-page a report on the Lehman bankruptcy, really a delightful um, bedtime experience. And the, it's an audit uh, by – the government, I think it's a government auditor of what went wrong. And uh, he just mentions – the guy who wrote the – authored the report just mentioned in the beginning that the universe um, – I'm reading from the report – the universe of Lehman email and other electronically stored documents is estimated at three petabytes of data, roughly the equivalent of 350 billion pages. So uh, you know, one of the – as you talk about it, you think about how technology allows – decentralization it allows the sharing of information you'd think it would allow the top down to be even more effective but of course when you have 350 billion pages you have no chance of doing anything from the top down and so i think one of the fascinating things as you point out is how technology has made it easier to do bottom up and how yeah the top down the the people who run an organization whether it's the military or corporation have to put in place some kind of structure for the bottom up to emerge and also to trust it. Um, and I do want to make it clear, and, and you obviously this is, runs through your book. Uh, when we talk about bottom up, we don't mean unplanned. It doesn't mean uh, that everything's random, everybody's freelancing. It means that this, the knowledge and the use of that knowledge is coming from the bottom. But of course, in any organization, there's whether it's the military or, or corporation or public policy, there's lots of planning that goes on. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely true. And talking about Lehman Brothers, uh, one of the chapters that I, I, I most uh, enjoyed writing and really learned a lot about was, was thinking about the financial crisis, which is a huge challenge for economists and for economics. And in this particular case, I found myself being drawn to a literature that I hadn't explored before on industrial accidents, uh, and this is a literature that economists have pretty much nothing to say about, and it's dominated by engineers, psychologists, and a couple of sociologists who are doing great work on how complex systems go wrong. And looking at um, the Challenger shuttle disaster, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl. Uh, of course, more recently, we've had Fukushima yeah. and, and Deepwater Horizon, uh, a really terrible oil rig accident in the UK called um, Piper Alpha, um, Piper Alpha is what got me interested, actually, because Piper Alpha triggered a small uh, financial crisis in the British insurance industry. So I thought, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll write about that financial crisis, that mini financial crisis, because it'll be a way into the big financial crisis. And, 
uh, I'd better write about what happened on Piper Alpha. And then the more I, re- more I read about what happened on Piper Alpha, the more I realized, hey, this is a complex system. Uh, and uh, the people who were trying to understand why it went wrong, uh, they, they're producing amazing stuff that's, that's absolutely relevant to the, to the financial crisis. And, and part of it is ensuring that uh, people who you know, are in a position to see what's going on on the ground actually have the incentives and the motivation and the right monitoring to do the right thing. Because um, there are different there are different ways things things can go wrong. Um, the psychologist James Reason talks about um, three kinds of error. He says there's slips, mistakes, and violations. Yeah. So a slip is um, you just do something you immediately realise that wasn't what you meant to do. You know, you push the wrong button, you whatever you you lock yourself out of your house, your, your car keys, your keys are inside the house, that kind of thing. Mistakes are things you you do because your your view of the world was wrong. So you took out a subprime mortgage and bought a house because you thought the house prices would continue to rise and you would be able to remortgage your house. That's a mistake. And then there's a violation. Yeah. And a violation is something you, you know is against the rules, but you did it anyway for whatever reason. So you, maybe you falsified your income claim. Um, or I mean, there, there are violations that take place on oil rigs, violations that take place in nuclear power stations. And there are violations that took place on Main Street and violations that took place on Wall Street. Um, and w- w- one of the things that interested me was, uh, okay, and this is about trust, um, uh, we, we devote a lot of attention to distinguishing between mistakes and violations, because violations, someone should go to jail. Mistakes are... Human. Uh, they're honest mistakes. Yeah. They're human. But actually, there is, a, there is something they have in common that's very important, which is they can both just sit there and come back to bite you days, weeks, even years after the original mistake. And that happens in industrial accidents. If somebody leaves a valve open or there's a safety system that's disabled um, and you don't find out about it until it's crisis point. But that also happened in the, um, in the financial crisis. People were investing in uh, instruments that were supposed to be safety systems. They were supposed to be insurance. The regulators had approved them. Um, uh, top management had impro- approved them and it was all going to you know, if something went wrong, don't worry, it was all covered and it was all hedged and it was all insured. And then when it comes to the crunch, suddenly you realize the safety system doesn't work. And whether it's a mistake or a violation, maybe doesn't matter as much as, hey, how do we spot that an error has been made in the system and uncover it before the critical moment? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting analogy. Uh, and when you, when you look at... Um it's some of these stories, and, and I've read some of them as well uh, before I saw them in your book. What you notice uh, is that the incentives get changed by the safety systems. So Absolutely. a lot of times uh, in industrial accidents, people aren't so worried when they see something going wrong because they know there's a backup. What they don't realize is it's Tuesday, and on Tuesday between 3 and 4 o'clock, the backup is shut down for evaluation. And you, and you have these weird – you give these examples in the book of where remarkably strange things happened in sequence that you wouldn't have expected. But, of course, every once in a while you get a, a black swan. They all line up, and, and you, get a, you get a catastrophe. For me, what's interesting is the, the incentives for care. And, I, you know, I'm – both slips and mistakes are, you know, they're part of being human. You, you, inevitably, you make slips, and inevitably, you make mistakes. 
But what you want to do is give people some incentive to avoid them. And if the incentives aren't there, then you're going to see a lot more both. So I wonder, and this listeners know this is my take on the crisis. I'm just going to throw it out there, let you talk about it, and we'll, we'll move on. But the, you know, when you have a system where people are, think they're going to be potentially bailed out, their desire and intensity to focus on the potential for mistakes and potential for slips is smaller. In particular, you're going to say, well, you value at risk. It doesn't work so well as a monitor of real risk, but eh, you know, it's not so bad if it fails. Or yes, I'm insured, but what if the insurer fails? That is a thing that any savvy person would worry about. And these savvy people knew that everybody was insured with AIG and other firms like it. So it's strange that they went to bed sleeping well at night. Uh, that's the challenge as to why they weren't more vigilant about the potential for the catastrophe. Maybe it's just a mistake. Maybe it's a slip, or maybe the incentives are wrong. Yeah, I, my feeling is I think it's I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I I don't fully buy the idea that um, all of this stuff was was extreme laziness or or even sort of willful fraud because everybody knew the government would would bail them out. I I don't think it was it was uh, that gross, but I I do accept that there was clearly. Uh, weighing on some people's minds was the likelihood of a government bailout, I think particularly people who were lending money to banks. Exactly. Uh, and, that, and, and that was a problem. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting to, to go back to the parallel with, say, a nuclear accident. Um, you, you could say, well, we don't need any government oversight uh, or any industry oversight of a nuclear power plant because, hey, who is the person who's going to suffer most of all if there's a nuclear accident, well, first of all, it's going to be the, the operators. They're, they're there. They're, they're in the front line. They're the ones who are going to get the dose of radiation. And financially, who's going to suffer? It's going to be the, the power company who, who owns the nuclear facility. Um, so I think you could say, well, the incentives are, are pretty good. I think you still want systems that, uh, that help out. Um, the problem is regulators do sometimes get captured. They end up yeah. supporting the in- industry rather than properly regulating it. Um, so you're always on the lookout for systems that work. When I talked to people in the nuclear industry, what, what I was struck by was they said, well, we've actually got a lot of peer oversight, which is a very powerful um, force, potentially. We go and visit each other's power stations. We keep an eye on each other. And that's something that I think was a very weak force in banking. And it's, maybe it's hard to see how it could be operationalized. But they inspect each other's nuclear power stations, and they, they issue reports, and they learn from each other. And you can sort of see how that would... No, nobody in the nuclear industry wants a nuclear power plant to blow up, and they've got a strong incentive to keep an eye on each other. So I found this peer monitoring idea very interesting and useful, but hard to operate. Yeah, and I think in the banking case, you really don't want them visiting each other and <laughs> spending a lot of time sharing, picking up bad well, ideas. Yeah, uh, Arnold, there, are, there are risks, clearly. Arnold Kling, who's... Um, blogs at EconLog, a sister site of this uh, program and who a frequent guest, he makes an interesting distinction between easy to fix versus hard to break. And he argues that we have a tendency to try to find systems that will never fail. He says what we ought to really be doing is finding systems that maybe they fail occasionally, but when they do fail, they're easy to fix. The costs are small. Instead, we've gravitated towards you know, the perfect regulation, we want to reduce the odds of, a, of any kind of failure to zero, which means when there is one, it's absolutely horrific. I think Arnold is, is, is absolutely right. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's an insight from Nassim Taleb, of course, on this, which is that these rare catastrophes, it's very hard to say exactly how rare they really are. 
they statistically it's almost impossible to measure them because yeah. they are rare and so going f- going for um making the catastrophe rare but if it happens it's going to be really really big is not necessarily a great strategy so i, I think i think arnold's right i mean the the way an engineer would think about this is you want a, re- a system that's robust if part of it breaks that can be contained yeah. um, you don't want anything to be well in the phrase that's become very famous don't want anything to be too big to fail yeah. and that's something i think we really need in our in our banking system and whether that comes from a market discipline or whether it comes from regulators um we need to figure this out uh, i mean it's not a it's not a simple problem i don't think it's a simple problem to 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 create a banking system where we can let banks fail with impunity but you know i feel it's something that's got to be the way forward and interestingly in the uk the banking commission which is run by Sir John Vickers, who's an Oxford-based economist and actually one of my tutors, uh, former head of the Competition Policy Authority in uh, in the UK, they've definitely pushed towards trying to make banks more modular so that you can sort of take a chunk out of a bank and rescue it and look after depositors and let the rest of the bank fail. You can, you can break banks up and um, isolate failures so they don't become systemic problems and that's clearly the direction regulation is is pushing in the uk i don't know how successful they'll be but that's obviously the way they're thinking yeah the problem is is that the bankers push back they don't like that um and i think that's going to be the challenge we'll, we'll see but i want to move on there's so many other interesting things to talk about now we're going to skip over a couple issues you do uh, explore in the book which we're not going to have time for which are uh the use of randomized experiments and fighting Third world poverty, I think, is very is very interesting, and you have some interesting things to say about the difficulties of figuring out how to live an environmentally uh, correct life, and some of the challenges. and And basically, what you explore in both those is the interconnections often make it difficult for any one individual to to see what's going on, which makes has implications for what what we should do. But I, I want to move on to to some more general issues because I want to get into the psychology at the end as well. Uh, what are the lessons of adapt for our of your book for our personal lives? I think the the obvious lesson is almost a cliche, and I think what's interesting is how difficult that cliche turns out to be. So the cliche is, "Hey, learn from your mistakes," right? Yep. And we always say that. And well, I, I started to think, well, how come how come we keep saying that? Yeah. Um, and it, it turns out to be so hard to do. I mean the. If you, if you wanted to generalize um, the, what I say in the book about how complex problems are solved, what sort of organizations or uh, markets, uh, what sort of systems solve complex problems, it's basically uh, three things. This ties in a little bit to what you were talking about, what Arnold was saying, Arnold Kling. So one is you need to try a bunch of different stuff, a variety of things. You, everyone can't be doing the same thing. Uh, next, um, since failures will be common, it needs to be okay for some of that stuff to fail. You know, that, that stuff can't you know, be a nuclear meltdown or a virus or a financial crisis that brings the system down. It's got to be you can, the failure has to be survivable. So yeah. number one, diversity. Number two, survivability. Uh, and number three is you need to be able to d- tell the difference between a success and a failure. <laughs> yeah. And that sounds that sounds obvious, but it, it, it's, it's not, not so a problem. Obvious. It's a problem. Yeah. I mean, it was a problem in the financial crisis where bankers were being paid bonuses based on apparent profits that turned out, you know, there were accounting profits, but they weren't real economic profits because there were risks embodied that couldn't be measured. Um, and governments have a, have a real problem there to telling the difference between success and failure. It's often not in politicians' incentive uh, interests to measure 
whether their particular policies are succeeding or failing. It's obviously, that's often inconvenient knowledge. So yeah, those three things, diversity, survivability, and distinguishing between success and failure. And if, if you've got those three things, you have a very adaptive system that will very quickly try out good stuff, will cope with its failures, and will pick out the successes and replicate the successes. So then the question is, can you do that in your personal life? And it's not so easy. Um, so think about the diversity, first of all. Uh, clearly, you know, we're just one person. So you can try out a bunch of different stuff, but it's easy to lose focus. I think that m- most people do tend to get stuck in a bit of a rut. I think they don't try out new experiences, new ideas as much as they should. I, I reflected on my time as a university student. I had such a great time. And I think not everyone enjoys university, but many, many people do. And one of the reasons is you're experimenting with everything. You've got new friends, a new place. You're experimenting with ideas. You may be experimenting with you know, things you shouldn't be experimenting with, but you're experimenting with a whole sure. bunch of different stuff. Um, political ideologies, different hobbies, everything. It's so exciting, and yet it's so safe, because none of those things are really going to cause you a problem. As long as you, you know, in the end, focus, revise for your exams, pass your exams, and then you're through that, so it's a very safe space for experimentation. That's why it's so thrilling. But we really struggle to do that, I think, later in adult life. We get very conservative. The, the, the other thing that's difficult about uh, having a diverse, things, a, a diverse bunch of experiments in our lives, different projects, different things we like to do, you know, maybe create a uh, huge internet uh, hit, a rap video, you know, unexpected <laughs> experiments. Um, Thank you. Is, is that, uh, well, you know, we, we, we all know about it. It's great. Um, but these experiments, um, it, we know that they will likely not work out. Most new things don't work out. And we're too afraid of failures. And that's an insight that comes from behavioral economics. One of the first discoveries from, you know, of the behavioral economics literature, Daniel Kahneman uh, and uh, Amos Tversky, loss aversion. The idea that taking a loss is disproportionately painful. And that makes it really hard to just try out these new things. But, you know, I'm going to ask that person that I, I like out on a date. The fear of rejection. Say, well, you know, why not? The upside would be great. The downside, you know, she, she, she says no, he says no. That's such a big deal. But it's very painful. We, we don't like to take chances. Um, and then the, the third thing, um, this idea of determining the difference between success and failure. That's also very hard. Um, there's a huge amount of work on denial um, and also on um, unhelpful responses to failure. So what a poker player would call going on tilt. Effectively, you double down, you chase your losses. So there are different ways in which we can either respond in a bad way to failure or we can deny that a failure has ever happened. And, um, you know, well, we can talk more about any of those things, but it, all in all, it means that this advice, you know, adapt, experiment, learn, grow, it's really good advice, but it's painfully difficult to take. Yeah, I've, I've been reading uh, – I'm teaching a seminar this uh, semester on Adam Smith, and I've been reading The Theory of Moral Sentiments, um, something we did a six-part podcast with Dan Klein, as some of you may remember. And I, I, as you talk about the difficulties of, of accepting failure, I'm reminded of the quote, he is a bold surgeon, they say, whose hand does not tremble when he performs an operation upon his own person. And he is often equally bold, who does not hesitate to pull off the mysterious veil of self-delusion, which covers from his view 
the deformities of his own conduct. And I think we have this very human impulse to gloss over our mistakes, to see them as successes. And I think part of growing up is learning to live with them and admit them and say, I don't know, or I made a mistake. And one of the things that, you know, that just fascinates me about the political world versus the business world, first of all, in the business world, you, you Mistakes are measured. Your company goes broke. You can't say it was a success. <laughs> and so I think one yeah. of the fascinating things about American culture is supposedly is that you know, in Silicon Valley, they say you're not a success until you failed two or three times. And people expect that. They give you a second chance. That is a very wonderful thing. In politics, it seems that the cost of a f- admitting a failure must be close to infinite. Because both George Bush and Barack Obama, just to pick two recent examples, when asked if they'd made any mistakes, they just – they don't seem to find them coming to mind. Uh, those of us in the electorate can list dozens, but the men themselves yeah, – uh, so it must be either that they're totally self-deluded, which could be, or they feel that by conceding even the smallest mistake – they open the door to negative ads and criticism, history. I find it interesting, though, that I really think it's more than that. I think it's not so much strategic as pathological and maybe necessary in some circumstances, not in presidents, but I think in some circumstances to go forward for people in, in, in various times in, in human history. Absolutely. And partly it, it's down, I think, to the voters. I, mean, I think one of, one of the really um, – memorable uh, choices in uh, U.S. political history. Maybe I'm biased. I was in Washington, D.C. I was living in Washington at the time, so maybe it just made a big impact on me. But John Kerry, George Bush, and really the defining image of that campaign was that George Bush knew his mind and made decisions, and Kerry was a flip-flopper. And that was how the campaign uh, was decided. Now, Kerry's defenders said, that's not fair. He's not a flip-flopper. Um, he, he, he is decisive. Nobody defended Kerry by saying, hey, what's wrong with changing your mind? Oh, that's a complicated <laughs> place. Yeah. You should change your you should, you know, you know, How many of us, I think lots of people sort of were in, in support of the, um, the war in Iraq, for example, and then later they saw it wasn't going very well and they changed their mind and they said, oh, well, in retrospect, this has been a mistake. I mean, it, uh, clearly, you know, some people always thought it was a good idea and some people always thought it was a bad idea. But a lot of perfectly reasonable people change their minds halfway through. That's not that's an indication of sanity, <laughs> and yet politically very toxic. Right. In the UK, our, our two most successful politicians are Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher. And here are the money quotes for Tony Blair: "I don't have a reverse gear." <laughs> Margaret Thatcher: "You turn if you want to. The lady's not for turning." They're two of their most famous quotes, and we elected them three times for Blair, three times for Thatcher most successful prime ministers in British history. But, of course, they also did... We, we, we don't like people who change their minds. Yeah, the irony is, though, of course, is that you know people we think of as very principled often break their principles relentlessly, but they're able to frame it as if they were principled. I think you know Ronald Reagan has this great reputation as this great free market capitalist president. He put on uh, the effective quotas on Japanese cars. He uh, put up with lots of increases in the size of government. With, he didn't stand up to Congress. He decided you know, prudently that he, he wouldn't win, I guess. But uh, we somehow think he was this staunch defender of principle. Uh, he changed his mind in Lebanon right, and decided to withdraw. Yeah. Oh, he, was, he would never do that. He's so strong. But he did it. And, but he has this image of being this, this strong person. Um, 
and and you, you know you talk yeah, about as opposed, as opposed to being a pragmatist. I yeah, mean, it's a strange thing that it's regarded as a strength. Um, you know, and and what you just said about Reagan changing his mind on this and that, you know, would be regarded as a criticism. Whereas in some cases, maybe he was he was absolutely right. Right. And it's interesting to reflect on what does that do to the incentives for politicians, and I, and I think it's a fascinating contrast between both markets and also the scientific method. So in, in the case of markets and in the case of the scientific method, basically one success makes up for a lot of failures. You have a whole bunch of failed theories. You've got one theory that works because there's a selection process that we start to believe the theory that works better, that has the better evidence behind it. The same with markets. A whole bunch of stores that go out of business and you know that's sad for their owners and for their employees, but you know, people pick themselves up again, people find jobs again. Um, the one successful business can employ a lot of people, can create a lot of economic value, can keep a lot of customers happy. Um, so it's asymmetric. You know, we can cope with lots of small failures as long as we have big successes, both in science and in the markets. In politics, it's completely the other way around. doesn't matter how many little successes you've got, one embarrassing failure and your career's over. And politicians know that. And so it gives them totally the wrong incentives in terms of uh, trying a diverse bunch of things, rigorously measuring what's working because for sure something won't work and you know that'll be used against you so we we've we've only got ourselves to blame as voters you know we but, we do it to ourselves why do we do that i mean let's think about if you think about the business world you know steve jobs who's one of the most revered and respected entrepreneurs of american or world history he had a lot of failures um just to take one example i always think about is the newton which was a palm type device it was a lot bigger than your palm but it was a portable device that was supposed to help you run your run your life and it was a total flop um and suppose that had come along later suppose that was his last device and all we had was was the iphone or some other all these other wonderful things he did you say well you know it was a mixed bag of course not everything he tried worked but you know so he was great, though. He created, as you say, a lot of value, a lot of jobs. And on net, he was a wonderfully successful entrepreneur. But Alan Greenspan appears to be going down in history as a loser. Uh, he was a genius. And then all of a sudden, because of his interest rate policies of 2002 through 2004, and perhaps I don't agree with this, but his his uh, failure to regulate subprime, I make him equally. I, I'm more likely to focus on his willingness to bail out uh, creditors in the say 1995 Mexican rescue, which he supported in Congress, which I think he had other. So he's a flawed man, okay? But it's interesting. He's not like a, he's not right, but he's not a mixed bag anymore. He's a loser. He's, a, he's not just, yeah. well, a flawed genius. He was a failure. And so why yeah. – you say it's voters. Uh, why is it that, that one mistake like that? Is it, because, is it because we don't have the choice to opt out that we have? You know, I didn't buy a Newton. So I don't, I don't have any anger toward, toward Steve Jobs about the Newton. But maybe because I had to live under uh, the regulatory policies of the Fed and the monetary policies of the Fed – I resent it, or a president who sends our children off to die in a bad war. We could we don't say, well, you know, that was he made some mistakes. He was somewhat successful. Maybe we're not so tolerant, and maybe maybe rationally so. It's a lot more at stake. I don't know. It's an interesting question. It, it, it is an interesting question. I don't have a good answer. But maybe one of the the things is it is an ad, politics is an adversarial system. Yeah, business less so. So you don't have. Now, there's some needle between Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, but you didn't have Bill Gates basically running attack ads yeah. saying Steve Jobs is a loser because he produced the Newton. It's a terrible product. Yeah. I mean, 
it, it just, just doesn't happen. And, and you certainly don't have, say, Bill Gates now or, or, or BlackBerry or uh, Google with their Android phones. You don't have Steve, uh, Steve Jobs' rivals now dragging up the Newton Correct. saying, look, he created this. Because, <laughs> and, and so it's, part, it's, partly, it's partly that it's just not an adversarial system. And it's partly that, well, that just seems crazy. Who would, who would pay any attention to that? But in politics, for some reason, people do. Well, people I think- do. You've got you've got people who are highly incentivized to point to any flaws and to just keep talking about it and keep talking about it, and it seems to have some effect at the polls. Yeah, I think you you uh, unintentionally perhaps highlight I think what is is part of the real difference. Uh, I think the adversarial thing is part of it. Although there were some pretty clever adversarial ads by uh, Apple against against uh, the PC in various times in Apple's history, and currently even recently. But but I think the other part of it that this that comes to mind as you talk about it is the difficulty of assessing success and failure. So there's some political things that are undoubtedly failures. There's some that are undoubtedly success, but most of them are vague. And so proponents of a particular party, a particular candidate will say this was a success. The other people say it's a failure. And I think it's the measurement problem. I think it's the inability. Like you say, you can paint somebody as a loser from something they did long ago. Maybe it wasn't even a failure. But in politics, yeah. it's the way – again, it's not like business where you can say, well, this was a failure. It went out of business. They stopped making it. Um, it would be bizarre for for Steve Jobs to say – to hold up the Newton as his success, and yet how many politicians – I'm going to go the other way from your example – hold up something they did as a success that, that's a failure. But because they can frame it a certain way, because people don't consume it the way they consume their own – you know, a consumer device, there's yeah, – I think – it's another part of the problem. Yeah. The, I mean the, the – if I go out and buy a Newton or I, today I buy an iPad, you can bet I'm going to be paying attention as to whether it works. But as a voter – no, well, I, I vote. Um, we had a, an election in the UK yesterday. I voted. I did my civic duty, and I didn't. You know, I, I thought about the issues a bit, but I didn't really think that my vote was going to make the difference. And so I was kind of paying more attention to stuff that actually made a difference to my life. And I think that's how vote, most voters most voters think. They they don't examine you know every aspect of the small print in a way that they they would if they were buying a car because the car really matters. Yeah. Uh, well, Brian Kaplan has, has written about that, and we've talked to him, and uh, Don Boudreau uh, writes about it a great deal as well. Uh, we're almost out of time. What would you uh, – we've talked about the lessons for, uh, for, for per, our personal lives. We've tried to talk about uh, some policy issues, some of the challenges of, of introducing what your book's really about, which is trial and error. It's about the virtues of, of trial and error. Do you want to say anything in closing about um, – policy in general and how we might get more trial and error. We, voters are part of the problem. Psychology is part of the problem. Is there anything else that we might think about to to let people try more stuff? Well, I, I think it is partly about changing the, the intellectual climate and, and getting people to accept that uh, it, it's okay to it's okay to fail um, as long as you're failing in the right way, as long as you're generating information. It's okay to experiment. Um, that, that, that this is this is really important. I mean, at the moment, I think we have political systems that just don't take evidence very seriously. Even even people who seem to be serious-minded, so the the Washington think tankers, you know, some of them are really interested in really high-quality evidence, the kind of the kind of evidence that a doctor 
an epidemiologist would take seriously. But often it's more, you know, it's a bit hand-wavy, it's a bit vague. Partly that's the nature of the beast. It's, yeah. it's hard to know exactly how an economist is doing. But I guess the, the, the closing thought for me um, is really going back to how I start the book. I start the book in almost the same way that I started my book, The Undercover Economist, which is with a riff uh, off Len Reed's eye pencil. And at the beginning of ADAPT, I talk about a toaster. I talk about a, a, a guy, a design student, who decides he was going to try and make a toaster all by himself. Sure. And anybody who's read Len Reed's eye pencil essay knows it's not going to be very easy. And it was, it was impossible. He, he, he made this absurd-looking thing, and he, he made all these kind of compromises. It's actually quite a funny story, negotiating with BP about can he fly out to an oil rig. He was trying to make plastic from potato starch and snails at it. I mean, he destroyed various things, microwaves leaf blowers. He had a lot of adventures trying to make this toaster. Um, and looking at the complexity of that product, I, at first I, I leapt to you know, the, the Len Reed, the, the pro-market conclusion, which I still believe, which is, wow, the economy is unbelievably complex, and it's this distributed system. Everybody's working together to a common goal without actually ever knowing what that common goal is, and, and nobody working alone could ever produce these miracles. And I still believe that. But where I really started with ADAPT was just to say, but hang on, are we actually happy with every aspect of the way the world is? Or have we got some problems? And if we've got some problems, it's going to mean making some changes to that incredibly complex system. And the more complex and amazing you think the system is, the more respect you give the system, the more challenging this project of actually trying to solve problems in a modern economy becomes. So with that, it was with that sort of humbling thought that I embarked on trying to write the book and, and trying to explore all these things. And it's just been a, amazingly good fun to write. My guest has been Tim Harford. Tim, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.